1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 17 just to give you an idea of what we covered last week. And this is, in fact, one of the more challenging uh, chapters in 1 Corinthians because it deals with so many different themes having to do with questions that the Corinthians were asking of the uh, uh, Apostle Paul and how he answers them in this letter. Uh, In verses uh, 1 through 9, he's dealing with the issue of uh, married and single and how a person should conduct themselves in their marriage. In verses 10 through 16, he's dealing with the issue of a uh, Christian husband or wife who's married to a non-Christian. It's a very important chapter, and if you weren't here last week, I'd really recommend to you the tape of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. But um, basically, the idea that he dealt with in this first section was this whole issue of if a person is married or if they're unmarried, how better is it for them to, to please God? In other words, can you please God better as a married person, or can you please God better as an unmarried person? Well, Paul wants us to keep that in mind as we come to verse 17. He says, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. You see, in the Corinthian church, there was a problem. You had a bunch of uh, married people where both husband and wife were Christians, and they thought it would be more spiritual if they lived as if they weren't married. Uh, maybe living together in the same house, but not having sexual relations. They thought somehow that would be more holy. And then you had uh, situations where you had Christians who weren't married, thinking, well, I can't please God because I'm not married. And then you had situations where Christians were married, but they were married to a non-believer. And they're thinking, well, I guess God wants me to dump my unbelieving spouse and to go on and just uh, serve him uh, all the way. And, and Paul has been speaking to each one of these groups in the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 7. But in verse 17, he lays an overarching principle that I think we really need to latch on to. He says, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Now, friends, he's applying this first of all, to the idea of your marital status. But it has an application much broader than that. But let's just bring it back to that first application. Listen, my friends, married, singled, divorced, widowed, remarried, whatever. God can work in your life. Instead of thinking that you can walk for the Lord or you will walk for the Lord when your station changes, walk for the Lord right where you're at right now. The Corinthian church was filled with people saying, oh, you know, I'm married, but if only I was single, then I could really serve the Lord. Oh, I'm single, but you know, if only I was married, then I could really serve the Lord. Oh, well, I'm married to this unbeliever. Only if they were gone, I could really serve the Lord. Paul wants to take him by the shoulder, shake him. Listen, walk for the Lord right now where you're at. Now, this principle of as the Lord is called each one, so let him walk is also a very, very important and practical principle when it comes to unsolving the marriage tangle that many people find themselves in in this culture. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Uh, In the United States of America at the end of the 20th century, we don't believe in polygamy, right? We don't believe in that. We don't, uh, our society doesn't permit it. But we believe in what might be called serial polygamy, where... 
you can have a lot of wives, you just can't have them all at the same time. You can just have them one after another. And a lot of times, this is a very, very difficult problem for people. Um, you know, okay, uh, I came to the Lord, and uh, my uh, second wife led me to the Lord, uh, but now I'm married to my third wife, but my first wife wants me to get back together with her. Pastor, what should I do? <laughs> I open up the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, and I say, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Listen. Forget about the past. Try not to undo the past in regard to your relationships. Repent of whatever sin there was and move on. If you're married to your second wife after wrongfully divorcing your first wife and become a Christian, don't think that now you have to leave your second wife and go back to your first wife trying to undo the past. As the Lord has called you right now, so walk in that place. And this is the principle that we have to go by. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And then he says, so let him walk. You know, might I say that again, Paul is saying that we can walk for the Lord wherever we're at. My, this is a big danger in the Christian life. The danger of thinking that other people have it better than you because of their different station in life. Married, single, divorced, don't matter nearly as much as having an on-fire walk with Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord wants from you. And the devil would love to rip you off all day long saying, well, you know, you really be able to walk with the Lord when? And friends, it just doesn't apply to marriage. How about this? Well, you know, you really be able to serve the Lord when you graduate from high school or college. Will you really be able to serve the Lord when you get this promotion at your job? Will you really be able to serve the Lord when uh, you have kids? Will you really be able to serve the Lord once your kids get in school? Will you really be able to serve the Lord once your kids graduate from high school? And pretty soon, well, I'll really be able to serve the Lord when I retire. And then I'll really be able to serve the Lord when I get out of the nursing home. (laughs) That's how it goes. You see how the devil does that? He paints this grass is greener, primrose path, trying to put before you this idea, well, you can really live full on for Jesus Christ when these circumstances in your life change. No, as you've been called for the Lord right now, walk that way. Walk for the Lord all the way right now. And that's how God wants you to do it. Now he's going to give examples of this. Take a look at verses 18, 19, and 20. He says, Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Now, Paul isn't talking about literal circumcision here. What he's talking about is a person's background as being either Jewish or Gentile. He's saying, don't try to undo your Jewishness and don't try to undo your your Gentileness, so to speak. He says, listen, verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Listen, if you were called while you were circumcised and then you became a Christian, fine. If you weren't Jewish of background when you became a Christian, fine. Those things don't matter. What matters is serving the Lord right now where you're at. Friends, Paul's point isn't really about circumcision. That's just an example. You see, even as being circumcised or uncircumcised, even being Jew or Gentile, is irrelevant when it comes to serving God. So is your current marital state. 
Well, I can't really serve God because I'm single. I can't really serve God because I'm married. I can't really serve God because I'm, uh, I'm married to an unbeliever. I can't really serve God because I'm divorced. Forget about it. Paul could just as easily say by analogy, uh, go to verse 19, he could say married is nothing and unmarried is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. You get the point there. Now he's going to go on and illustrate the point again, verses 21, 22, and 23. He says, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. Now, of course, in the Roman Empire of Paul's day, a very substantial portion of the population were slaves. In some cases, up to 50% of the population were slaves. And slaves were used in all kinds of duties. A lot of slaves were teachers and educators for the children. Some of them were household servants. A lot of them were farm workers, that kind of business. So slaves could be of any different kind of social job or strata or whatever, but there were a lot of slaves. And you could just imagine a slave who comes to Jesus Christ spending all day long thinking in these terms, you know, I could really serve the Lord if I was only free. Oh boy, you know... Boy, what a drag to be a slave. Oh, you know, God can't use me very much now. But oh, if only I was free. Boy, then I would be a different man serving God. No, no, no. You see, he shouldn't live his life thinking, I can't do anything for God now, but I sure could if I was a free man. He can and he should be able to serve God right now. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't care about improving your situation. Did you see what he said at the end of verse 21? He says, but if you can be made free, rather use it. Well, sure, if you have an opportunity to become a free man, fine, improve your station. You see, Paul's not trying to say, listen, you're stuck in your little slot and you can do no other, and that's where you're going to be all your life. You know, there you are, you're a clerk at McDonald's, and that's, that's your job right now, and what would Paul say to you? He'd say, well, listen, serve God where you're at. But he's not trying to say, that's all you're ever going to be. He says, if you have the opportunity to advance yourself, take it. But the big thing is having the mentality of God can use me right where I'm at. Then he goes on to say, verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Isn't that great? No, so you are a free man when the Lord called you? You know what? You're not free. You're Jesus' slave. Oh, so you were a slave when the Lord called you? You're not a slave. You're free in Jesus Christ. Paul says it works both ways. It doesn't really matter. Then he goes on in verse 23 and he says, You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that calling with which he was called. Friends, do you notice this in verse 23? You're bought with a price. Might I say that that's something that we all do well to remember. That we are the purchased possession of Jesus Christ. We belong to him. Jesus Christ did not purchase us out of the slave market. He did not rescue us from our slavery so that we could run out and just do our own thing and and be free unto ourselves. He bought us. He owns us. But then again, the same principle holds true. Do not become slaves of men. Now, it's true in regard to the literal slavery that Paul's talking about. Paul's saying, listen, if you have a choice between living as a slave or living free, take freedom. Don't be a slave of men. But it's also true spiritually. To me, it's always amazing how many people, and there's a lot of people out like this in the world, 
who are more than ready, more than willing to make themselves spiritually the slaves of other people. Isn't that amazing? I think of uh, uh, this shown in its most extreme forms. Say like years and years ago, that fellow David Koresh and the Branch Davidians out in Texas. Now, here was a man who went around uh, claiming the right to have sexually any woman in the group, and the men in the congregation would gladly yield up their wives and their daughters to this man. They were totally enslaved to him on many, many different spiritual and social levels. And you know what? They loved it. And I sometimes have a hard time understanding what it is just as much as there are always people in this world who will want to take a spiritual domination and lordship over other people. There's also other people who long to be spiritually dominated and lorded over. Paul says, that's not right. Don't become the slave of any man. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, do not follow even good men slavishly. Do not say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Calvin, I am of Wesley. Did Calvin redeem you? Did Wesley die for you? Who is Calvin and who is Wesley but ministers by whom you believed as the Lord gave unto you? Do not so surrender yourself to any leadership that rather you follow the man instead of his master. I will follow anybody if he goes Christ's way, but I will follow nobody by the grace of God if he does not go in that direction. Wasn't that true? Listen, we're not to be made slaves of anybody. We are never to put ourselves under the inappropriate control or influence of others. It's before God that we stand and fall goes on and he says, do not become slaves of men. Verse 24, brethren, let each one remain with God in that calling with which he was called. This principle applies across a broad spectrum. Married, unmarried, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free. You get the idea. We can seek God's best. We can be used by him right where we are. So friends, what's distracting you from serving the Lord and living all out for him right now? What is it? Is your marriage distracting you? Is sorrow distracting you? Is joy distracting you? Is business distracting you? Is the world distracting you? You better put those things in proper perspective. There's nothing so good that it can't be used to distract you from what God wants you to be doing. And then he goes on to say, let each one remain with God in that calling in which he was called. Now, I do need to add one point upon this, and I think it's been pretty clear what Paul's talking about. But we do have to take pains to realize that this does not mean that we are to continue in a sinful course or occupation, if that's where we are when we were saved. There's a famous story about a gangster who was saved in the 1950s in Los Angeles in some revivals associated with Billy Graham and J. Edwin Orr uh, among a group of Hollywood people, and this man was a mafia gangster. And uh, apparently he hadn't had the way of salvation and repentance explained to him very clearly because he honestly thought, you know, somebody came up to him basically and said, well, all you have to do is trust in Jesus and just trust in Jesus, and that's it. And that's all that was ever explained, nothing about repentance, nothing about a change of life. 
And this man honestly thought that he could go his way and be a Christian gangster. Well, look, I mean, there's the Christian banker, and there's the Christian lawyer, and there's the Christian doctor. I'm a Christian gangster. You know, I don't know. He put it on a little fish symbol on his business card or something. Who knows? But you get the idea here, friends. You know, I mean, in the book of Acts, uh, in the city of Ephesus, when uh, the, the conjurers and the sorcerers came in the city of Ephesus, they burnt their books. They broke off their association with their old life. They made a break with the past to serve Jesus Christ. Well, there are some occupations. There are some things. Listen, you just shouldn't be involved in them anymore because you're a Christian. But other things don't really matter. Like Paul's saying, married or unmarried, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, it just doesn't matter. Now, heading on to verse 25, we're back to playing Jeopardy. You know what I mean by that? 1 Corinthians 7 is made up of answers to questions that Paul was writing to the Corinthians about. The Corinthians wrote him a letter, and in that letter they asked him several questions. Hey, Paul, what about this? Hey, Paul, what about this? And what we have in this letter of 1 Corinthians is we have the answers to the questions. We don't have the questions. That's just like Jeopardy, right? They give you the answer. You're supposed to figure out the question. Well, apparently, in verse 25, the question has to do with what about those who are unmarried? Paul has already dealt with people where two Christians are married in a, uh, are in a married relationship, and he's dealt with the issue of what if you have a Christian and a non-Christian in a married relationship? Now somebody's asking, but well, Paul, what if somebody's not married at all? Verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Let's notice a few things. First of all, what he says here, when he says, now concerning virgins, uh, you, you shouldn't think that he's referring just to females or just to males. The Greek word there basically refers to unmarried people of either gender. Uh, even though they might not have technically been virgins, that's the term for it. Although certainly in Christian homes, they should have been. So he says, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment. Now please, friends, understand what Paul is saying here. There are some people who would twist the scriptures to their own ends, to their own uses, and try to act like, you know, somehow the inspiration level goes down right here. You know, Paul, oh, Paul's not inspired of the Holy Spirit here. Look, he's admitting it. He's saying it's not the Lord saying this. No. You see, Paul is dealing with life situations that differ from individual to individual. And so therefore, he cannot give one universal command. I mean, think about it. They wrote Paul and they asked, is it good for people to get married? And Paul's going to say, well, yes and no, right? He can't give one answer that fits for everybody in every circumstance. This is real life. This is flesh and blood. Yet, Paul is going to give inspired advice and inspired principles that will help the Corinthians and help us to understand how these things apply to our lives. So he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. 
Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Now notice the principle here. Paul goes back in verse 26, and the main principle he lays out is that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now Paul is speaking to the never married man. He's speaking to the single man, even as he himself was single at that time. He's saying, listen, friend, I think it's better for you if you remain as you are, that is, either remaining single or remaining married. Why? Notice this again. He's saying, remain as you are. Are you bound to a wife? Then don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Then don't seek to be uh, bound. In other words, Paul is recommending to the Corinthians and giving us sober wisdom, don't be so quick to change your station. Now again, doesn't this address this whole grass is greener mentality that really trips up a lot of people? I spoke about this extensively last week, but it just bears repeating, at least briefly. You know, how many people get tripped up thinking, you know, um, how many married people I've met who wish they were single, and how many single people I meet who wish they were married? And this is part of the reason why Paul says, listen, don't be so quick to change where you're at. So often, when we're in a situation, uh, let's say you're single, and let's be honest, Paul's going to talk about it, there are some positives and there are some negatives to being single. There's some good points and there's some bad points. But somehow, when you're in that state of being single, all you can see is the bad points. And you don't think of any of the good points. Well, isn't that the problem with the person who's married but wishes they were single? Listen, there's some good points about being married and there's some bad points about being married. And Paul's just saying, listen, look at the whole picture. Now, but notice what else he says, and this is very important. He says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that a man says as he is. Apparently, there was some kind of local persecution in the Corinthian church that was either there or right on the horizon that made it all the more important that a person remain just as he is. You see, because of the present distress, there are certain advantages to being single. Because of the present distress, there are certain advantages to remaining married. Now, what's the advantage of remaining single? Well, you can easily imagine. In a time of great persecution or great crisis, how much more of a burden a wife or a family could be to someone committed to standing strong for the Lord. Listen, you know, you might say, and you might be brave enough and just, you know, awesome, and you might be the most studly Christian around, and you may stand up there, go ahead, torture me for Christ, I'll never renounce him. But if you were threatened with the rape or the murder of your wife or the torture of your children, and say, we'll stop torturing them if you'll renounce Jesus Christ, friends, that's a heavy burden to bear, isn't it? And that's why Paul says, listen, uh, in light of the present distress, maybe you shouldn't be so quick to get married. Now, this may seem far away to us, and in our culture where we face so little persecution as of now, it does seem far away to us. But friends, this was not far away to the Christians in the first century. Well then, if this is the case, then what advantage is there in remaining married? Well, friends, at a time of great distress, your family needs you more than ever. Don't abandon your wife and children now. So what Paul's saying is, don't be so quick to change. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loose. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. 
Paul is echoing the same principle laid down previously in this chapter, where he talked about uh, slave, free, circumcised, uncircumcised, married, unmarried, it doesn't matter. God can use us right where we are, and we should not be so quick to change our station in life. But notice what he says in verse 28. Again, Paul wants to make sure that people understand he's laying down principles, not dogmatic law. He says, verse 28, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. Paul is not going to forbid marriage. If somebody in the Corinthian church came up to Paul and said, Paul, in light of the present distress, I really love this woman. I really think I should get married. But should I get married or not? Paul said, well, you really want to get married. Go ahead. I'm not going to forbid it. But at the same time, just, look, just take a sober view of it. Look, we know in and of ourselves, and I know none of you know it personally, but you know friends, of course, who have entered into marriage unwisely, perhaps too harshly, too quickly. And Paul is giving a very, very sober direction. Take a step back and understand what you're doing. You see, Paul felt, especially for himself, that it was a greater advantage to remain single. Now, can you understand this knowing the life of Paul? Have you read the book of Acts and seen this guy's missionary journeys? How many times he was shipwrecked? How many times he was beaten? How many times he was attempted to be executed by stoning? How many times he was uh, whipped? How many times he was kicked out of the city? Everywhere he goes, he ends up in jail or starting a riot or this or that or the other thing. Could you imagine bringing the wife and kids along with you on that? It just isn't going to work. So Paul says, listen, it makes an awful lot of sense for me to be single. But yet Paul knows that each one has his own gift from God. You know what I think is especially meaningful about this? And please latch on to this, my friends. Paul knows and, and wants to communicate this very strongly. That married or single are never more spiritual than the other. And even though Paul says, you know, he prefers singleness for himself, he's not going to imply that being single is any more spiritual. And neither will he imply that being married is any more spiritual. Now, I think the church has had trouble with this at certain times. Certainly, there's a large segment of people who, uh, you know, identify themselves as Christians in the world today who say that if you really want to please God, if you really want to be one of his ministers, you can't be married because it's more spiritual if you're not married. Paul would say, what are you talking about? On the other hand, there's a great idea. It's not spelled out so specifically, but there's a great undercurrent of thought And a lot of it has to do with a very needed and and important emphasis on family in the church today. But it kind of makes people think that, well, if you're not in a family, if you don't have the house and the kids and the white picket fence, you really don't belong in the church. And friends, neither one of those is true. It's not more spiritual to be married. It's not more spiritual to be single. It doesn't matter. You can be spiritual wherever the Lord puts you. Just serve him with everything that you have. And this was the big error of the Corinthian Christians. Some of them wanted to think it was more spiritual to be married. Some of them wanted to think it was more spiritual to be single. Paul just wants to shake them all up and say, listen, just walk with the Lord where you're at. And have a a mindset that looks to the world beyond. Look at this, verse 29. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. 
Those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Paul is warning us against putting down roots too deeply in a world that is passing away. And he says the time is short. And friends, do you know that some people criticize Paul or even declare him to be a false prophet here? Because he says the time is short. Hey, Paul, the time is short, huh? That's about 2,000 years ago, Mr. Apostle Paul. The time is short? Yeah, right. Friends, I want you to realize that Paul is true to the heart and the teaching of Jesus Christ who told all Christians in all ages to be ready and to anticipate his return. Jesus told us all in Matthew chapter 24, verse 44, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. We are to be ready, and we are to regard the time as short. Friends, not only because Jesus can return at any moment, which he can, but also because, well, it cultivates a more obedient, on-fire walk with Jesus Christ. If you woke up this morning thinking Jesus could come back today, do you think that would have an influence on the way you would have lived today? Why don't you wake up tomorrow thinking that way? But let me add this to your mind. Even without considering the return of Jesus, it's worthwhile and it's accurate for Christians to live as if the time is short. You know what? Because even if Jesus doesn't return for 100 years, maybe your time is short. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 39, verse 5? Indeed, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my age is nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. Listen, friend, we're just dust. We could go to be with Jesus at any time. So Paul says the time is short. I love it, too. He uses a a specific ancient Greek word there that actually means to contract something and to roll it up as they would roll up the sails as they're coming into harbor. You know, when a a sailboat's coming into harbor, you don't leave the sails down because the wind will just drive the the sails and drive the the ship too fast into the harbor. So what do you do when when you're coming into harbor and you're almost at your destinations? Well, you roll up the sails. You shorten up the sails. So Paul's saying, listen, the harbor is near and the sails are shortened. Get the ship ready for harbor. You're about ready to go into harbor. Prepare for that destination. And so he says, listen, the time is short. Verse 29, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, I know that there may be some men here listening tonight or on tape. We're going to take this as their memory verse for the week. Um... (laughs) And they're going to think, you know what, man? I'm going to go to that Dodger doubleheader. And then I'm going to go play pool with the boys all night. And then I'll go surfing all the next day. And hey, Paul, honey, listen. The Bible says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. So I'm sorry, hon. I'll see you in a week after I'm done having a lot of fun. Friends, of course, Paul is not encouraging the neglect of proper family duties. But he is encouraging living as if the time is short. Friends, I'm going to say something that I hope, well, if it treads on toes, I hope I'm treading on them as the Lord would have us tread on them. 
And I am thankful for the emphasis and the, the uh, ability to really hone in on issues regarding the family in the last 15, 20 years in the church. But family can become an idol. Family can become an altar that, that you act as if family is all that matters before the Lord. And friends, it isn't. It's significant. It is important. But I think Paul is telling us that you should not live as if your earthly family was all that mattered before the Lord, but you need to live with an eye to eternity as well. Now, please, I know that those remarks should be taken out of context. And Well, Pastor David says we shouldn't care about our families. No, no, no. But it's a perspective. Friends, the simple idea is that we can commit idolatry with things that are good. And the family is good. And God wants us to have an emphasis on family. And God wants us to love our families and put them in the right place. But you can commit idolatry with your family. And Paul's saying, don't do it. The time is short. Live with an eye to eternity, not only upon your earthly family. Then he goes on to say, how, verse again here, verse 30, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess... You see, friends, a time is short attitude is not going to indulge the feelings and the things of this world. Weeping, rejoicing, having possessions must not get in the way of following hard after Jesus Christ. Do you live your whole life for an emotional feeling, an emotional thrill? Do you live your whole life to buy things, to have things? Friends, that's not a worthy occupation for a child of God. So he says it's passing away. The world is passing away. Let it pass. Verse 31, And those who use this world is not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Now, back onto the issue of married or unmarried, he comes to verse 32. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And I say this for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Friends, let me summarize what Paul has just told us in the last few verses. Verses 32, 33, 34, and 35. He's saying that the unmarried have the potential to serve God and please God with fewer distractions. Now, might I say, he says, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. When Paul says that in verse 32, let's remember he's speaking ideally. He's speaking of the potential. He's saying, if you're a single person, if you're a single Christian, you have the potential to devote more of your time and energy and service to the Lord and to the things of the Lord. Now, let's face it. How many single people are really taking advantage of that potential? A lot of that time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort is just being wasted on things that are frivolous, on things that are worldly, on things that are silly. And I'm not saying that your life should be no fun and that you shouldn't have a good time at things, but... You know what I'm talking about. Paul says, if you're single, you have a resource at your disposal. You have more time. 
Paul is simply recognizing that when a person doesn't have a family, when they do not have family responsibilities, they are more free, so to speak, to serve God. This is the main reason why Paul considered the unmarried state preferable for himself. And he goes on to say, he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Now, please, Paul doesn't say that this is bad. That's how you should be, right? Listen, if you're married, you shouldn't live as if you're not married. Paul isn't saying it's wrong for you to care about how to please your wife or how to please your husband if you're married. That's how it should be for a married person. There's something wrong if a married man does not care about how he may please his wife. And there's something wrong if a married woman does not care about how she may please her husband. But Paul's reason for explaining these things is not to forbid marriage, but to put it into an eternal perspective. I love how he puts it here in verse uh, 35, where he says, I say this for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you. He says, listen, I'm not trying to put a, a noose around anybody's neck. I'm just sharing from my own heart and my own experience. Now, can I share a perspective that I think is really from the heart of Paul here? He's not saying it specifically, but certainly it's woven into the whole tenor of what he's saying. For Paul, the most important thing in life was not romantic love. It was pleasing God. Now, there are people, many people, especially people who feel their lives are deprived of romantic love. They make it an idol. Now again, is romantic love a bad thing? Not at all, my friends. It is a precious, wonderful gift from God. Just like family is, right? Just like family. But even as someone can take a good thing like family and make it an idol, so someone can take a good thing like romantic love and make it an idol. And for Paul... Pleasing God was more important than romantic love. For him, he could serve God and please God better as a single. But he says, listen, another person might please God as married, all according to our calling. Let's notice this as well. Paul says very plainly here in verse 35 that he says it for your own profit, that I, not that I may put a leash on you. I just think it's remarkable and Again, I, it's not my intention to ruffle feathers here, but undoubtedly I could in the minds of some. How the Roman Catholic Church has come up with the idea of required celibacy for their pastors and priests and ministers is just beyond me. Absolutely beyond me. Absolutely unfathomable. Because Paul makes it very clear that this is a special gifting, that it's better for some people, that there are some aspects that have it preferred. But he's shouting through this whole passage, I'm not trying to put a leash on anybody. But that noose has been put around the, the necks of Roman Catholics who insist on celibacy for all of their clergy, even if they are not gifted to be so. And then he says, notice it at the end here of verse 35, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. You know, for Paul, being unmarried meant having fewer distractions in his service of God. Now, I think this is amazing. Let me say that again. For Paul, 
being single meant having fewer distractions in his service of God. Now, what I think is remarkable about this is when I've met and talked to many single Christians, their own singleness is a huge distraction for them serving God. Do you know what I'm talking about with this? It's as if they, they think, well, I just have to get over this hurdle, and then I can serve the Lord. Their own singleness, that which God meant in their life to eliminate distractions, or at least lessen them, right, has instead become a huge distraction in and of itself. And I think Paul would just shake his head and say, what's going on here? You see, instead, singles should regard their present unmarried state. Listen, whether it's permanent or whether it's temporary, let's face it, right now, you're unmarried. Permanent or temporary, you should regard your present unmarried state as a special opportunity to please God. Say, well, David, I don't like being single. I want to be married. I really want to be married. And you know what? I, if I wasn't married, I'd want to be married too. I mean, I... My heart goes out to you. But can I just tell you that I just have to believe that if you will serve the Lord with the gift of less distraction that he's given you right now, he'll take care of the getting married part. Verse 36. Here's another question. But if a man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of her youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Now, again, let's understand what here he's asking a different question to Paul here in verse 36. Uh, in the previous verses, the basic question, should I get married if I'm single? And Paul says, listen, go ahead if you want to. But he goes, I like being single, and I think there's a lot of advantages to it. You really ought to consider it. Now Paul's answering the question. He says, well, what should I do with my daughter who is single? Let's remember Uh, in that culture, largely, parents had the responsibility for marrying off their daughters and their sons. And so here's a daughter, here's a son, you know, going to mom and dad, mom, dad, I want to get married. Mom, dad, I want to get married. Arrange a marriage for me. Arrange a marriage. And mom and dad say, well, you know, son, the apostle Paul said, and the son's going, I'm going to kill that apostle Paul the next time I see him. I don't know what he's thinking. You see, again, the behaving improperly mentioned in verse 36 has nothing to do with any kind of improper moral behavior, but it has to do with denying someone's son or daughters the right to marry based on Paul's valuing of singleness. In other words, Paul isn't going to go around saying or commanding parents, don't marry off your son, don't marry off your daughter. After all, it's better to be single. Paul's saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Look, if... She's getting a little old and getting past the age. Oh, marry her off, for heaven's sakes. Right? The clock's ticking. There might not be much, much time left. So go ahead, marry her off. I mean, there he says, verse 36, if she's past the flower of her youth, whatever that means, and, uh, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Paul's not saying that it's wrong for a father to allow his young daughter to marry even though Paul's saying, look, I personally desire the single state and think you guys should really consider it. Verse 37, he says, Nevertheless, 
He who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but power over his own will, and so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. You see, because singleness does have its benefits, Paul is going to recommend it. He goes, dads, listen. If you can encourage your son or daughter to remain unmarried, fine, then that's great. But don't impose it upon them. Don't impose it, but let it be there. Please notice, when Paul is talking about the difference between being singled and married, even though there's no doubt about it, Paul preferred the single state for himself, right? Paul never presents it as a choice between good and bad. Paul never thinks of it in those terms. You know what he thinks of it in his own mind? He says, well, listen, there's better and best. For me, single's best. Married's fine, too. So he's not trying to put the married state down, but just saying that it works best for him being single. All right, let's wrap up the chapter here, verse 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Okay, now we're in final jeopardy here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's dealt with the question of, you know, um, should I change my married state? I'm married, should I get unmarried? I'm single, should I get married? Paul says, serve the Lord where you're at. Oh, wait a minute, Paul, I'm not married. Is it okay for me to get married? Paul says, look, if you really want to get married, go ahead. He goes, but consider the advantages of being single. And Paul says, well, Paul, uh, my daughter, she wants to get married. Should I marry her off? Paul says, listen, you know, if she wants to stay unmarried and you can, and you, can you know, persuade her, fine, but don't impose it on her. Now the last question they get asked is, Paul, I'm widowed. My husband, my wife died. Should I get remarried? Well, what does he say? He says, you're not bound. Go ahead. Get remarried. But notice what he says. Only in the Lord. Do you know what that means? Don't you go out and marry an unbeliever. You marry only in the Lord. Now, this is a principle that Paul repeats a couple different places in his letter, but just the importance of marrying a Christian. At the same time, Paul believes that such a widow is happier if she remains as she is. That is, if she remains single. Essentially, Paul wants the widow not to remarry without carefully considering that God might be calling her to celibacy. Hey, maybe the Lord's calling you to this, Paul says. Maybe he is. So again, Paul is going to affirm the value of singleness, is going to affirm the value of celibacy, not because sex in itself is evil. No way. Now, some of the Corinthian Christians thought that, but Paul says no way. Instead, why is the unmarried, why is the celibate state in some ways superior in Paul's mind? Because it offers a person, if they are so gifted, more opportunity to serve God. But we get the point, don't we? Wherever you are at, you can serve the Lord. I want that to be a word of freedom to some of you tonight. I think that maybe there's some people here tonight that that's just opening up mind-blowing new arenas in your life. 
because you just had it in your head that you couldn't really serve God well where you were at right now. You know, something had to happen. Something had to change. Something, you know, you couldn't really give it all for him now. Later, when this or that changed, you could. You know what? You can do it all now, tonight. And I think the Lord wants to move among us and do that exact thing. So let's pray and uh, just spend some time and worship before the Lord and let him work deeply into our hearts his word.